Open our Bibles, please, to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Oh, a week ago, when I drove into the garage, I got out of my car and I, my, my eyesight went right there on the floor and I've, I had some pieces of wood stacked up on the, or, or setting on the side of the garage. I've been working on a project and, and I looked down and one of those pieces of wood was wet. And I thought, that's odd. And my garage is sloped, you know, so the water runs out. <laughs> so I followed it up the hill, right up to the top of the water heater, where there was a stream of water going. Uh, thankfully, it wasn't the water heater. It was another thing on top of the water heater little pressure relief valve didn't relieve my pressure all that much but so I turned off the water uh, went out on the street turned the water off but the pressure was still there and it was still going and I have a little stool that I leave right there next to that business because I set a little garbage can on it and so I get up on the stool and I'm doing this thing trying to undo the plumbing and in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, I was a pile on the floor. My feet went out from under me. It was wet. And and thankfully, Daniel Erickson was there. Otherwise, I'd still be there, jammed in between the hot water stand and the step. And help me get up. I need help a lot lately. I'm hoping that as my knee, my knee heals and becomes strong, I won't need so much help. But I need help. And what the Apostle Paul is going to say is he concludes four chapters, a message that's four chapters long on pride and on spiritual ministry, is he's going to say, we all need help. In fact, I believe this theme goes like this. A maturing believer, a growing believer, follows the instruction of the Lord communicated through the life of spiritual mentors. We have a a strong idea, especially in this country, that my life is all about me. And when it comes to my spiritual life, it's all about me. And I am an island, I am self contained. And the Apostle Paul is going to say, no, that is not true. That that might be an American idea, but it's not a Christian idea. Please follow as I read 1 Corinthians chapter 4, starting in verse 14. I do not write these things, and he's referring back to chapters 1 through 4 so far. I do not write these things to shame you, but I write as my beloved children, I write to warn you. For though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I have begotten you through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you, imitate me. For this reason, I have sent Timothy to you, who is my beloved and faithful son in the Lord, who will remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach everywhere in every church. Now some, some of you, are puffed up as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you shortly, if the Lord wills. 
And I will know, not the word of those who are puffed up, but the power. For the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. What do you want? Shall I come to you with a rod, or in love and a spirit of gentleness? There's a verse to make your life verse, huh? What do you want? Shall I come to you with a rod, (laughs) or in the spirit of gentleness? Oh, whoa, Paul. Paul, have you gone too far? No, what Paul wants us to understand first and foremost is this. The Christian life is experienced in relationship. God never intended the Christian life to be a solitary experience. Me, by myself, with God. Now, I know there's some value to that in some parts of our lives. And yet, what God says above all is that the body of Christ is a body. We are to be working together and helping each other. You see, Paul's love for the Corinthians, as he expresses it here, was parental. Look what he says. I'm not writing to shame you. And and what he's referring to there is everything he's had to say. And he's had to say some pretty hard things. He's had to say, folks, you're proud, you're arrogant, you're, you're clinging to the wrong things, you're elevating people, you're dividing into groups over your affinities in the church. And he, he really had to, to go after them pretty hard. What we're going to find as we go forward into chapter 5 is that the Corinthians wrote to Paul to say, we've got some questions about how we're supposed to live. And he wrote to answer those questions, but before he could get to those questions, he had to write this whole sermon in chapters 1 through 4. And he just stops now, and this is the conclusion to the sermon. And he says, I want you to know something. My goal here is not to make you feel bad. Um, One of the challenges of preaching God's word is that sometimes people feel bad. Um... And sometimes they might look at the preacher and say, you're just, you're being mean. You're trying to make us feel bad. And, and, and as a preacher, sometimes it's hard to be positive with negative information. But the ultimate reality is sometimes God's truth hurts. But what Paul says is, look, I'm not even trying to hurt you. I'm not trying to shame you. I'm not trying to make you feel bad. I'm trying to warn you. Now, when do you give somebody a warning? You give them a warning when they're in danger. But along with that, he says in verse 15, he said, now you might have a lot of instructors. The word instructor is an interesting word in the original language. It's not the common word for a teacher. It's actually the word for a slave who would have been sort of a mentor and a guardian and an assistant to the child going to school. That slave in that home would have been assigned to say, okay, it's your job to take Johnny to school. And he would have led him by the hand and taken him to school, which was only for the privileged few. And Johnny would have gone to school and the slave would have been there with him and probably carried his lunch and carried his books and everything else. And then they would have walked home and perhaps in the process, the slave would have learned some things. And maybe over years, the slave would have actually been, now, now Johnny, this is what the teacher was talking about. Did you understand this? And so he was more of a tutor or a mentor as opposed to the teacher who was educated and, and so on. And so the Apostle Paul makes a comparison. He says, in the Christian life, you may have many people who lead you along and guide you along. But he's talking to the Corinthians saying, you only have one spiritual father. 
Now he's really, he's really uh, trying to tug on their heart a little bit. And, and if you fast forward into 1 Corinthians 15, you read this. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel, the good news of salvation in Christ, which I preach to you, which you received, and in which you stand, by which you are saved, if you hold fast the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, what I received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, and that he was seen by Peter and then by the twelve. The apostle Paul said, I, I'm the one who preached the gospel to you. I am your spiritual father. And as such, he is calling on them to pay attention to what he is saying because of the virtue of his relationship. Paul led some of the people at Corinth to the Lord. No doubt he didn't lead them all to the Lord, but he led some of them. And he spent a couple of years discipling them, and he poured his life into them because that's how he did ministry. Listen to this from 1 Thessalonians when he was at the, the uh, town of Thessalonica. We were gentle among you just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. As you know, how we exhorted and comforted and challenged every one of you as a father does his own children, that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom. The whole way that Paul conducted himself, his mental image of caring for people was as a parent and a child. Not that he was somehow superior, that he was above them, but more so, he said, now if this was my child, how would I care for them? And that's how he invested himself in. His goal was not to make them feel bad. He only made them feel bad because they needed to change their behavior. Paul's love for the Corinthians mirrored the desires that every good father has for his children. Now, I said every good father. I understand there's some bad fathers, but there's some good ones. And the good father is, is first of all, concerned for the physical health of their children. And so, what do you say if you're concerned for your children's physical health? You say, don't, what? Don't play in the street, right? Because you're concerned for their physical health. Child doesn't understand what's going on, but you do. And if you're really concerned for their physical health, you say, eat your vegetables. Yeah, of course, then dad's got to eat his vegetables. That's a problem there, isn't it? And then, maybe in your house you say, don't touch the wood stove. There's a whole series of things. We warn the children, are we trying to make them feel bad? No, that's not our goal. Our goal is their physical protection. And so a good father does that. A good father is socially concerned for his child. And he says, Johnny, say thank you. Susie, say please. Johnny, you don't get to go to the kager. Because he knows that evil company corrupts good morals. Susie, you do not get to date an unbeliever. And then the good father is concerned about self-sustenance. That your children will move out and be on their own someday. And so you say, do your homework. Because people who are more educated are more likely to be self-sustaining. Learn to work. Here, Johnny, let me help you learn to work. <laughs> Dig a hole. Okay. 
One author commented this way, Paul wanted his children in the faith to enjoy their spiritual birthright. In other words, when you become a child of God, God has much blessing for you. Your spiritual birthright is to become like Christ and to enjoy all that that means. Paul wanted his children in the faith to enjoy their spiritual birthright. And he knew that as long as they gave way to pride and conceit, as long as they gave in to the flesh and the wisdom of the world, as long as they allowed religious cliques and a partisan spirit in the church, they could not have full joy, which was their spiritual birthright. And so like a good father, the apostle Paul says, don't do that. Stay away. Change. Because he's trying to help them get to God's God's great place in their life. Paul's love for the Corinthians was parental, and his desire for respect was parental. Look at verse 15. You might have 10,000 instructors, but you only have one father. Therefore, I am urging you, verse 16, to imitate me. Paul appealed to them for obedience based on his position in their life. Paul made it clear that he was a spiritual leader in their life. The parent-child relationship parallels the spiritual parent-child relationship. Does a child, a physical child of a parent, owe the parent respect in part because they brought them into the world and helped them thrive into adulthood. Does that child owe some respect to their parents? Yes, they do. Here's a great question. Is the child wiser than the parent as early as they think they are? Now, I will grant you that some children become wiser than some parents that some children live better lives than their parents. I'll grant you that. But the question is, is the child wiser than the parent as early as they think they are? That's what was going on with these people and their spiritual father, Paul. He's writing back to them saying, children, you're living the wrong way. It's not going to get you where God wants you to go and ultimately even where you want to go. They thought they knew better than the Apostle Paul. See, looking back, we can look at this and go, wow, this is so easy to understand. This is the Apostle Paul, the the guy that God revealed much of the New Testament through. He's the guy that traveled all over leading people to Christ, including to Corinth, and now the Corinthians are going, you don't know what you're talking about. And, And we're going, what? problem is we do the same thing and the problem with children is they don't understand they don't understand the danger of playing in the street they don't understand the danger of how you drive the car they don't understand the danger of who you hang around with yet it's a growing understanding and so parents have to warn One night when my children were still at home, as I went to get into bed, I heard a noise in the house. And where we lived in Seattle was a place that you you took note of all that stuff. And so I got up and I did a house check, which I rarely did. 
Yep, the, girl, the girls are in their bed, but the boy was not in his bed. I thought, what in the world? Thankfully, I remembered a discussion we'd had earlier in the day, and he was talking about painting the rock at the high school. The high school had this rock, and the kids painted it. You know, it's just like the rock down there on, the, on I-5, only it was right at the high school. They tore down the whole high school and built a new one. They kept that rock, and uh, they would paint it from time to time. I thought, that little squirt has run up the hill to paint that rock. Now, he was in like 7th grade or 8th grade. It's dark. It's almost midnight. So I got in my car, and he must have been running fast because he was all the way there by the time I drove up the hill. And I just said, get in the car. Now, here's the problem. My son didn't know. He was in the epicenter of the highest crime area of Tukwila. You know, when you hear about White Center, when you hear about the Rainier Valley, and then occasionally you're seeing my old friends from the Tukwila Police Department on the news at 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock at night. And he was right there in the center of it at midnight by himself as a scrawny little 7th grade kid. I said, get in the car. And for those of you in my Sunday school class, I did not lash out in anger. <laughs> but my ri- anger was righteous. <laughs> We'll talk tomorrow. Within a half a mile is a place where I had tended to the family of a murdered child, a murdered teenager, and they stole his clothes and murdered him. And, my, and I thought, son, you don't have a clue where you're putting yourself. And he didn't. Christian, it is in your best interest to listen to follow the lead of those who are more mature than you in the faith because they're looking out for your spiritual well-being. Listen how God puts it in Hebrews 13. Obey those who have the rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give an account. Let them do so for, with joy, not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. Isn't that interesting? He doesn't say you're going to upset their apple cart. He says you're going to upset your own. In this passage that I'm about to read, God shows what I would call the whole chain of relationship. You remember our, 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 our first point was, if you look on your notes there, God has intended us to live out our Christian lives in relationship. And I want you to see that here in 1 Peter chapter 5. The elders who are among you, I exhort, who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. The elders are to shepherd the flock, the sheep of God, the the believers of God, which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, Paul's Paul's instruction to the Corinthians was not about him being something big. Remember, he said, I'm writing to warn you. You You should give this oversight as an example to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you, be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. 
there is, a, there is a chain of relationship that God has put in place. And he says it starts with Christ. Uh, the, text doesn't, the text does call him the chief shepherd. And then we have people that we might call the under shepherds or the, you know, the next level down. Christ leads people through his word, but he also leads through those who are spiritually mature. And the spiritually mature give leadership to others, and the others, as Paul has just said in 1 Corinthians 4, do well to follow the lead of the elders. This is also a a broad principle regarding children and parents, wives and husbands. Younger men and women are to learn from mature men and women, Titus chapter 2. And that's why, look back at 1 Corinthians chapter 4, And see this statement that Paul makes that to our ears sounds awfully egocentric. Verse 16, imitate me. You know, we might say, that's awfully gutsy. He just says, you should imitate me. Wow, really? The reason he says that is this. The Christian life is learned from doctrine demonstrated. The Christian life is learned from doctrine demonstrate. We can't separate verses 16 and 17 because verse 17 brings, I guess we'd say, the balance and rounds out the truth of verse 16. You should imitate me for this reason. I have sent Timothy to you, who is my beloved and faithful son in the Lord, who will remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach everywhere in every church if we take verse 16 by itself and just pull it out of the bible and say imitate me what we're what we then will create is an egocentric cult a jim jones a david koresh you name it and he just says you just follow me that's not what paul says what paul really says Uh, in these two verses together is summarized in this phrase, imitate me as I imitate Christ. You see, he talks about the truth in verse 17. He said, as I go from church to church, I teach the same thing everywhere I go. It's interesting to me that there's a double positive in this verse. We see a lot of double negatives in the scripture, but there's a double positive. Uh, As I teach everywhere in every church, one of those would have been enough. But he makes, he makes this case that the only thing that would have been taught everywhere in every church would have been this. Because he wasn't, he wasn't saying, you know, it didn't have to do with, now, now here's how you have a potluck dinner. Now, now here's how you, here's, here's the instrument you should use in your worship service. It didn't have to do with, uh, you know, you should do this or do that in real specific terms. It had to do with this is God's truth. And the Apostle Paul not only wrote it and taught it, he lived it. And so in Hebrews 13, another verse puts it this way. Remember those who rule over you who have spoken the word of God to you. In other words, it's not just a personality thing. This guy's in charge, so do what he does. I... The craziest thing I ever heard preached, I heard this in a church service that I attended, um, and when I I was a teenager, maybe a college student, and I came home, and this guy had been off to a certain Bible college, 
and he preached a sermon, and I don't remember anything about the sermon, but at one point, he whipped his foot up on the pulpit like this and pulled his pants up, and he says, and he says if godly men wear purple shoes, I'm going to wear purple shoes. And, and I wasn't very mature in the Lord, but I remember thinking, what? What does that have to do with anything? Last week, I had one of my college mentors here, Dr. David Drollinger, and you remember I said back in the day, he told all the guys who were going to be pastors, you need to wear a tie because pastors are supposed to wear ties. I want you to know I didn't wear a tie then either. And I'm also not going to go sockless like he does now. Because none of that matters. And that's not what Paul was saying. He wasn't saying, now you should wear the same clothes I wear. There was a Willem Rodenhouse in our youth group. Went to the funeral of his father. And he was wearing the clothes of a Mennonite. Thought about him recently, and I thought I wanted to say, who said those clothes were the most spiritual clothes in the world? I, I don't get that. That's not what this is about. This is about this lived out. It's about character. It's about godliness. It's about righteousness. And so when Dave Drollinger was here last week and he talked about investing his life in other people and showed an example of how he did it, I was convicted about how I'm living out the chaplaincy that God has given me. His, the doctrine lived out challenged me. That's what Paul is talking about. He's saying, follow me. Look at the way that I'm living my life. And you can read the rest of the New Testament and see how that went. Look at my sacrifice. Look at my dedication. Look at whatever it is and imitate that. Imitate me as I follow the Lord. Last week, last couple of weeks, we also had Jim and April here sharing how God has worked in their lives. Great example they gave us. We have lots of people here who walk with the Lord and whose example falls into the category of listen to your elders and follow their example because they care for your soul. That's, that's the real qualifier. God has designed Christianity to be truth learned one person to another. I think, I think in our... American kind of highly technical way of thinking of education, we have taken the Bible and said, well, here on Sunday morning there's a class and we learn the Bible. God says the way you learn the Bible is I'll take the Bible and I'll shove it into somebody's soul and they're going to live and then you listen to how they talk and think and watch how they act. That's what God wants us to do. And as such, we can all lead one another from time to time and in, in place to place and way to way. God designed Christianity to be truth, learn one person to another. Okay, class, here's the question. Who started that? It's a trick question. It's really easy. Who started that? What? Jesus. What did Jesus do? He said, come follow me. We've kind of spiritualized that to mean just dedication. They literally followed him. Oh, that's how he does that. Oh, oh, look at that. Oh, wow, listen to that. They were there. 
when he was crucified. They learned something about living for God, watching him be crucified. They were there when he was put on trial. They learned truth lived out through a person. And then where did it go from there? Peter. Peter stands up and preaches the word and lives it out. And then Paul, and and in particular, we have the example in 1 Corinthians 4 of Paul and Timothy. Verse 17, Timothy is my true son in the faith. He will teach you my ways. Paul discipled Timothy, and Timothy's going to go and disciple the Corinthians. And Paul is urging them, now listen to him. Because he knows God's truth. He knows how I've lived it out. And you should listen as well. I'm afraid that many of us in our American Christianity have gotten to be like the mother whose son joined the military and he went to basic training. And it came time for graduation day. And uh, the units marched in to take their place. And she was there watching them marching, marching, marching. And she exclaimed loudly, Look at that! Everyone is out of step except my son. The Corinthians were out of step. And the Apostle Paul is saying, folks, you need to get in step. And he wasn't saying it to build himself up again. He was saying it because if they did not get a hold to God's truth and live out God's truth in God's way, it was going to mean a downward spiral in their life. Following the lead of those who are more mature is a humble position. It's a humble position to take, but you need to remember this. Not only is humility a virtue and pride a sin, but humility brings God's help, and pride brings his discipline. You younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. All of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. This word here was used in secular Greek of, of going to war. I always think of that. I don't want to go to war with God. I don't even want to be on the other side of that line in the sand from God. I want to humble myself under God's hand. But the way we do that is by humbling ourselves within the body of Christ and saying, I need help living out the Christian life. The Christian life is experienced in relationship. The Christian life is learned from doctrine demonstrated. And the Christian life is demonstrated by godliness. And you'll see where we're going with this point in just a minute. But would you look here at the end of 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 18. Now some of you are puffed up. The word puffed up uh, is translated arrogant in the NIV, in the New American Standard Bible, and I think that's a good translation. Some of you are arrogant, the attitude and the actions of some of these Corinthian believers seems to be like a rebellious child. You know, the parent says, uh, Johnny, step in line. And Johnny goes, who's going to make me? We've all seen that. We've all experienced that. That's what these people did. Paul's not going to come. Huh. He's nothing. He's, he's a fraidy cat. He's going to write a big, strong letter, but he's never going to come. The Apostle Paul says, oh, I'll come if the Lord wills. The Apostle Paul was, 
the Apostle Paul was so submitted to God, he knew God could work this out one way or another, and he knew he was going to send Timothy, and he knew he was going to send the letter. But what he said here to, to give the Corinthians a little more information was this. Verse 19, if I come, I will know those who are arrogant, they're puffed up, but they don't have any power. For the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. Now, sprinkled throughout this book is references to people being critical of Paul. And somehow, I mean, again, it's kind of hard for us to conceive. He goes there, he leads them to the Lord, he disciples them, and somehow they get so turned around in their prideful thinking that they go, you're nothing. We don't want anything to do with you. And they're criticizing, you know, his physical stature, and they're criticizing the way he speaks, and They're comparing him to guys that are more eloquent and all kinds of things. But like a loving father, Paul made it clear that he would come home and deal with the disobedient children. But he said something interesting. He says, when I come, we'll know the difference between those who are just talking and those who have power. Now, some of you who know what an apostle was may be imagining, well, yeah, Paul is going to ride into town, into Corinth, and he's going to do some miracles. Healing, speaking in tongues, miracle. And the other people would go, oh, we can't do any miracles. We don't have any power. It's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the power of God that changes lives. The apostle Paul didn't do miracles on demand anyway. If he had, he'd have healed himself. And he'd have healed Timothy. He wrote to Timothy and he said, Timothy, take a little wine for your stomach's sake. Medicinally, your stomach is messed up. If he could just do miracles on demand, he would have healed Timothy. That's not what he's talking about. I believe he meant something more like what he wrote in Romans. The kingdom of God is not in eating and drinking. It's not just the physical life, but it's in righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. In my Sunday school class this morning, we were talking about controlling anger. Here's the question, class. How much power does it take to control anger? Does it take a little power or a lot of power? It takes a lot, doesn't it? We talked about things that are frustrating. and think, yes, but, yes, but, oh, oh. And, and we, we want to allow ourselves the sinful expression of anger but God is capable of producing righteousness and peace and joy through the power of the Holy Spirit. For he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved by men. The Apostle Paul is writing to the Corinthians. He's saying, hey folks, you need to look at these men who you're following and say, are they really godly men? Because real godliness is not in word It's in power or deeds or actions. John MacArthur put it this way in his commentary. Faith that does not result in right living may have words to support it, but no power. A person's true spiritual character is not determined by the impressiveness of his words, but by the power of his life. If the Apostle Paul had gone to Corinth his interaction would have been something like the Apostle John laid out. 
The Apostle John wrote to a church and he said, I wrote to the church, but this fellow, Diotrephes, who loves to be in charge, he loves to have the preeminence, he does not receive us. Therefore, if I come, I will call to mind his deeds, which he does, prating or or criticizing against us with malicious words. And not content with that, he himself does not receive the brethren and he forbids those who wish to put them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate what is evil. You see, what what John did here in more detail is what Paul was talking about. This, This behavior is evil. And John appealed to that church. He said, don't imitate what is evil. Imitate what is good. He who does good is of God. But he who does evil has not seen God. And the apostle Paul says, let's find out who's really walking with the Lord and who's not. And what this comes down to, Christian, is this. A maturing Christian discerns who they should follow based on godliness. A maturing Christian discerns who they should follow based on godliness. No matter how good of a talker someone is, if their life isn't godly, they should not be followed. I spoke with a pastor this week who's having some difficulty in his church. And he told about a board meeting in which a couple of men were being extremely critical. And toward the end of the meeting, one of the men stood up, took his papers, threw them down, and cussed the pastor out. That's a guy whose godliness is in word, but not in deed. That's what Paul's talking about here. Let's see if these guys really show Christ, if the power of God is in their life, or if they're just big talkers trying to gather a crowd. It escapes me why people would go into a church to try to gather a crowd, why they wouldn't just do it outside, but there must be something about that. If they didn't really love the Lord, a maturing Christian knows who they should follow based on godliness, you don't look at a person and say, wow, they talk good or they dress good or they, you know, they've, they've done this or that. You look at their life and say, is that person godly? When I see Dave Drullinger, who was a godly example in college 40 years ago, and he continues to walk with the Lord, serve the Lord here and there, and now go to South Africa by himself, and do all that he can. I think that's the guy, that's the kind of guy I want to follow. When I hear Jim and April, I didn't get to hear April's story, but I heard it secondhand, and I, I would have liked hearing it. When I hear them share their story, I think, now oh, there's some godly people. Oh, he's got, a, he's got a flashy job, but that isn't what he's excited about. He's excited about the Lord. And so, Paul's final warning here, again, Paul gets real in the face of these people, but his final warning should have really got them to sit up and take notice. The Christian life is lived out under authority. Would you look with me at at verse 21? What do you want? Shall I come to you with a rod or in love and a spirit of gentleness? The rod is an illusion. He's not talking about physically beating them. And by the way, anytime you hear about somebody coming up with some physical method to exercise demons out of people just just mark it right down it's not true you can't do something physical to gain something spiritual 
So he's not talking about beating them or threatening them or some crazy thing like that. But he is alluding to this word rod in the book of Proverbs, which says, spare the rod and spoil the child. He's clearly talking about discipline of the, in the parent-child relationship. And so let's go back to that parallel. The godly father does not enjoy giving physical discipline to his children or any other discipline, but he's prepared to give out reminders, as I've heard them called, because the character of the child is that important. My daughter must be down taking care of Titus, but I didn't enjoy spanking my kids. But I sure did want them to turn out like they've turned out. And it can't happen without some forms of discipline, of training, of reminding, not just physically, but with words and all of that that you do and you do and you do. And I remember walking my wife down the aisle at my son's wedding, and he was 21, and I thought, this is the culmination of 21 years of work. And it's sweet. The Apostle Paul didn't say... I'm going to go see them Corinthians and I'm going to beat them black and blue with the Bible from head to toe. That's not what he was thinking. He was thinking, you folks, you've got to get right with the Lord. Your spiritual life is hanging in the balance. You know, when you walk away from the Lord and live in sin, things go bad in your life. And he said, I don't want that to happen. Spiritual discipline that he's talking about is not physical. It's, it's verbal based solely on God's word. Here's an example of what it, what it would look like. Paul told Titus, the pastor at Crete, he said, there are many insubordinate people who do not follow the lead, both idle talkers and deceivers, people who are just foolish and people who are actually trying to lead Christians astray. There are idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the Judaizing sect, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole households, teaching things which they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. One of them, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply. Why? So that they may be sound in the faith. That's what spiritual discipline looks like. It's never a godly thing to say, well, I don't have anything good to say, so I'm going to walk away. No, if somebody's living in sin, we've got to speak up. We've got to bring that brother or sister back. If, if a rebuke is needed, a rebuke has to be given. As Paul said, my goal isn't to shame you, but to see you walk in the Lord and know his joy and his peace. And the book of 2 Corinthians makes it clear that when Paul wrote this letter and when he sent Timothy, that some of those people did turn and get walking in the right way. Mm. I had my last physical therapy appointment this week. Uh, don't get too excited. It does not mean my knee is healed or completely functional. It just means I'm on my own to work it back up to strong and relatively pain-free level. Physical therapy after orthopedic surgery is, is fascinating to me. The therapist, you know, from the moment 
the therapist would see me, whether it was a he or a she and several different people, they would watch me walk. And they would watch me do exercise. And they said, now don't do it that way. Do it this way. You know, one of the instructions they gave me was, you know, don't, don't, go, don't do this. <laughs> Duh. <laughs> but, you know, it hurts, so you do that. They said, heel and toe. Heel and toe because it will exercise the muscle that's weak up here. Okay, I get that. Now, I could have blown off physical therapy. I could say, hey, I've had knee surgery twice before. I don't need physical therapy. And if I'd have said that, many of you would have said, what's wrong with you? You need to go to physical therapy. You know how I know that? Because many of you have said, you be sure and do your exercises. You know what? That's good. That's a good positive pressure that we put on one another. I could have chosen to ignore the direction of the therapist. I could have skipped therapy. But because I don't know the best way (laughs) to rehab a knee after a replacement, I said, I'm going to follow this person's lead. And they're going to show me, they're going to show me the way to do this. You know where I'm going, don't you? None of us knows everything we need to know about Christianity. And God has designed his body of Christ to be a team effort where we help one another, in particular those less mature look to those who are more mature. Now you can look at this truth in a humbling way and say, oh, I don't want somebody telling me what to do. Or you can look at it as comfort. Like Red used to say on the Red Green Show, I'm pulling for you. We're all in this together. Heavenly Father, help us. We are an arrogant people, every one of us, because we're human. And on top of that, most of us are Americans, and we want to do it ourselves but you want us to work together. You want the the more mature to lead the less mature. You want there to be a constant chain of discipleship going on from youngest to oldest. And, and, And Father, I just pray that that would happen. I pray that you would help us to humble ourselves, to listen when people give us those inputs and those instructions. And, and as we do that, may we know your peace and joy in greater measure, in greater measure than we've ever known. May we learn to trust you in your instructions. I pray in Christ's name, amen.